morning. I'm assuming I did, wasn't in here for the announcements. I was out there talking to people. You know how that works. And um, I think Mark probably said something about the retreat. We did just get back from the retreat. Had a wonderful time. The elders and past elders and staff. And uh, it was just really good. Came back tired, but really good. How many of you, uh, only women are allowed to raise their hands here. How many of you are going on the retreat next weekend? Wow, it's going to be like kind of like a ghost town in here. In the first service, it had to be half the service. It'll be a lot uglier. It'll be a lot uglier, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true, true. We could start calling out names, but you know who you are. <laughs> yeah, it'll be mostly guys, I imagine, doing things. So that'll be kind of interesting and fun. We uh, are praying for you on your retreat. What a, what a neat thing that the uh, elders and staff and former elders could go on a retreat one weekend and many of the women uh, go on a retreat the next weekend. This is important in our church. So we're very excited. Staff and elders have been praying for this. Well, we are in the middle of a series where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? And um, this actually, this series fits between two series, so we're kind of hopefully trying to connect the dots. You may remember the first series was on generosity, and we talked a lot about your financial resources and what does it mean to be generous, and as you grow in Christ, you find, I'm hoping most of you, that you want to be more generous. As God blesses you, you want to help people that that don't have as much as you, people that are needy, and people that have experienced trauma, and things of that nature. Well, then we moved into this series, and you can see from the slide, we titled it similarly, but now we're talking about the sacrifice of generosity, focusing on sacrifice. Now we're offering ourselves up, and we look, we're using Philippians as the place to help us grasp that whole idea that part of growing in Christ means we give ourselves and I know that many of you do that. I understand that. I see you all over the church building everywhere I walk. I have people that sometimes are coming out my ears here. It's great. It's wonderful. But we are to give ourselves, and we've been working through that whole section. When we get to Advent, uh, yes, Advent is coming pretty soon, right after Christmas. Isn't it amazing? I mean, all these Christmas boxes, isn't that great? That was just like the first night. And um, Mark's probably talked to you about that. Grab one and fill it up. And uh, we'd love to fill up every box as we celebrate, what? The coming of the Lord, Christmas. That's what we celebrate. God did not forget us. He remembered us. He came back for us. He remembered his promise. He remembered his covenant. That's what Christmas is all about. And so from here on out, we're moving in that direction very slowly. So as we talk through the first couple of chapters the first chapter and part of the second chapter in Philippians, we talked about our own sacrifice and Paul's sacrifice. Today we're going to be talking about Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And we, he becomes the example for the rest of the book, and then that opens the way for us to move into Advent and talk about how wonderful that is. I mean, can you imagine uh, serving in a world where the gods don't really even care about you? Living in a world where Gods don't care who you are, really. You're there to serve their needs. Don't tick them off. You don't try to emulate them. You don't try to love them. You simply try to appease them. Can you imagine? And then you meet the one true living God. And what does he say? I didn't forget you. I remembered my promise. I'm sending my son. That's what Christmas is all about. The, the richness of that message alone, that is the heart of the gospel. He did not forget us. 
we are not alone. He came back for us. Paul today is going to jump into that. But first, just a quick summary of where we've come. We opened up the beginning with partnership in the gospel. It's the very first thing he thinks the Philippians, he thanks God for on behalf of the Philippians, that they are partners with him in the gospel, much like we are today. In fact, did you realize that we are partners with Paul? Just don't forget that. We're partners with Peter. All the greats that we know, in fact, we could go down through the history of the church, Origen, Augustine. We are partners with all of them. We have the same mission. We are partners in the gospel. But then he moves on a little bit after that. He talked about his own personal life in prison. And he remember that stunning conclusion that uh, some people are preaching Christ out of good intention. They want to see people come to the Lord. Some people are preaching Christ because they hope to cause me more physical pain and suffering in prison. And what does he say? I don't care. It doesn't matter. All I care about is that Christ is being proclaimed. And then he says twice, I rejoice over that. Wow. How many of us have that attitude? So there's this connection between partnership and suffering. And I asked the question last week, could it be, and I'm going to defend it a little more today, could it be that our suffering is God's primary way of showcasing his glory, revealing his glory to the world around us? Remember, the only thing we have in common with every other human on the planet is pain and suffering. Some of you I have in common economics, my economic status. Some of you I have in common hobbies. I like to four-wheel drive, and several of you do. Some of you, I mean, you could go on and on and fill in the blank, but the only thing I have in common with all of you is pain and suffering. It's the common language in a depraved and broken world, a fallen world. So if that's the case, then if God really wants to help connect us to the world around us, then pain and suffering, makes sense to me, would be one of the primary ways that he would do it. That's why you have that wonderful verse in 29, chapter 1. For to you it has been granted on, to, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's part of God's grace. If we really want to see our friends and neighbors and our family come to know Jesus, then some of you, that's going to involve suffering because that's an instant way to connect. The people in this world, they understand suffering. Every one of them. They understand pain. So he brought those together. And then in chapter 2, last week, we saw that Paul is encouraging us to have a new mindset. Verse 2 of chapter 2. He goes through all those statements of reality in verse 1 that we've all experienced encouragement and comfort and that. He says, if that's true, which it is, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have a new mindset. That's unusual in the first century world to be unified. That was not the goal. That's not the way they thought of it. Have the same mind, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. He says it twice, that word, the same mind, being united in our thinking. This is something new, something brand new. So what is it? Well, to answer that question, we're going to have to go and look at Jesus. By the way, when you look at how you interpret the Bible, my own personal approach is wherever I am in the Bible, if I interpret it and I come to what I think is an understanding, my next step is to look at Christ. If I can see it in Christ, then I know my interpretation is correct. If I can't see it in Christ, then I know I've missed it. That includes the Old Testament by the way. That's what the Hebrew, author of Hebrews teaches us. 
that uh, God has revealed himself perfectly in his son. That's what John 1.18 said. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten one, the son, he has revealed him. So every interpretation, no matter what it is, I go back and I look at the life of Christ and I can find it there, then I know it's a sound interpretation. If I can't, I probably made a mistake. So we're going to look at Christ. If you look in your Bibles, and starting in verse 6, you'll notice that the fonting changes. The style of print changes. The reason it changes is because we just entered into a poem. And we're going to talk about this, this little section right here. Everybody I know, every pastor, every scholar, everybody that, that does this for a living, looks at this stuff, has concluded that this is a hymn, an early hymn of the church. And we have our hymns, don't we? We know what they are. And here's one right here that they probably would have understood. And Paul, he stole it and used it. It's wonderful. This gives us insight into how the early church viewed the work of Christ. And it's all captured in a few short verses. It's the climax of the letter, the apex, the high point of the letter is the work of Christ. It exalts Christ to the highest place possible. God human, the God man. We talk about that and here's where we get it from right here. This passage. He is both God and he is both human. And we're going to see why. By the way, if you finish this sermon and you are confused, welcome to the world. <clears throat> Don't ask me afterwards any questions on this one, okay? Because I'm not going to be able to make any more sense of it than what I'm about to tell you right now. But you'll notice when we read it that it's just, it is a poem. It's, a, it's rhythmic. It just flows. The words just flow out. Um, well, it's well-crafted, well-written. It condenses the work of Christ into one hymn which provides for us a very concise, what we would call Christology, a place where we can look at Jesus and find the basic answers. It's right here. So if you want to know the place to go to understand Christ, we're looking at it right here. This is it. It presents Jesus as the ultimate model for our behavior, for, as I like to say, what it means to be a true human. If we are being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, what does that mean? We look to Christ and we see a true human. We're not being conformed into his deity. We're being conformed into his humanity. So every one of you can look at the life of Christ and get a picture of where you're becoming. Was he compassionate? He was, wasn't he? Was he loving? Was he generous? Was he sacrificial? Did he put others first? Hopefully, you've noticed in your own lives that as you move forward toward maturity, as you continue that journey of maturity, I should say, hopefully you've noticed that, that those things are happening in you. They're being formed in you. Hopefully, if you look back three, five, ten, whatever, how long you've been a Christian, years ago, if you look back, you will see that you're a more compassionate person today than you used to be. Hopefully, you see you care about greater and better priorities than you used to. Hopefully. You know what that means? You're moving more to be like what God created you to be, a true human. And Christ gives us that model right here. Unlike most leaders in the world, whether in Jesus' day or in our day, Jesus understood his position is to mean giving, not getting. No way you can state how unusual this was in the first century world. The people that read this, 
they knew exactly what it was like to serve, serve local government leaders who were more interested in getting than giving. In fact, that's often true today, isn't it? We can all think of leaders in our country that are more interested in getting something than giving something. And Jesus turns that on its head. He just flips it on its head and says, no, at the heart of leadership is, give, is giving on behalf of others. And he does that. This, all of this is what led him to replace the glory of heaven, that wonderful splendor for not only a human life, but death. But death. We're going to take a look at it. The core command is in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. What's this attitude? What is it? Well, I, before I tell you, read it to you, the passage, it's going to say, through Jesus, the same thing that Paul has been saying through the first chapter. It's going to talk about humility, self-sacrifice, self-giving, servanthood, putting others first. He's going to urge the Philippians to practice in their relationships with one another what he did, and now he's going to argue what Jesus did. It's a wonderful example. Christ is the best example. Before I read to you this hymn, I'm going to read to you another passage as a background. It's Isaiah 53. It's a fantastic passage about this coming Messiah. Listen to these words, these great words. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty. He had no majesty. Nothing to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance would cause us to desire him. Nothing. He was despised. He was rejected by others. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, they're ashamed. Like one from people who, whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain. Surely he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. He was stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquity. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before it shears is silence, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was alone, in other words. For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any kind of deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And here, Lord is all capitalized, referring to the one true living God, Yahweh. It was the will of this one true living God to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though this one true living God makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, after he has suffered, remember that, some of you, key point, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. I will bless him. That's what that means. I will bless him. I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide all of the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Is that a pretty graphic, clear picture of the Messiah that we serve? The Jesus and we say we believe in? Do you still believe in Jesus after that? All right, come back to Philippians 2. We're going to read the first couple of verses, 6 through 8. I guess that's 3. Verse 6. In fact, let's read verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very certain nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He starts off with describing Christ as one who is in the very nature, or some of your translations say the very form of God. This form is contrasted in verse 7 with being the form of a servant. This is a pretty unusual word. It's infrequent. What we know about it, it has this idea that what you see on the outside corresponds to the inside. So if he is truly God on the outside, he's truly God on the inside. If he's truly a human on the outside, he's truly a human on the inside. He is and he remains truly God. Look in verse 6. He doesn't say who was in the very nature God. Who says It says who being in the very nature or existing, present tense. He continues to exist in the very nature as God. Contrast that with verse 7. says he made himself past tense. Sometime in the past he made himself nothing. And in the past, he became a human, but he always exists as God. So the verb tenses are very important here. He continues to exist in the very form or the very nature of God. This is further clarified by this idea that he did not consider equality with God as something to be taken advantage of, mine says. Um, it could be translated something to be grasped or held on to something to use for his own advantage. He's sitting in the throne room in all the splendor, glory, majesty, happiness, wonderful, peace, shalom, every place, everything that God experiences. And he did not consider that position, that high position 
as something to be used for his own advantage. Who's he watching out for? Himself or us? Us. Us. It was not that important. So the very first thing he says is, Jesus, who exists, continues to exist in the very nature of God, did not consider that position as something to be used for his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing. He took the path that ultimately leads to humiliation, shame, death. Now, it's important to understand, he did not exchange the form of God for the form of a servant. In fact, let's use the word slave there. Because in the first century, they didn't really have, they really had two classes, those who were free and those who were owned. And so they would have understood this as slave, same word. So he, he didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Rather, and this is where it starts to get a little, a little thick here, he manifested or he revealed God now in the form of a slave. He is a God who became a slave while still being God. He made himself nothing. This is where, why this famous passage is called the emptying of Christ. He emptied himself. He made himself of no effect. He went from the highest place possible to the lowest place possible. That's what he did. For you. He did that for you. He became a slave. This means he gave up his rights. Even the right to live. Or as Hebrews says, he had to become like us in every way. He became a true human. He is God who became a slave while still, still being God. And in the process, he became like one of us so that we can have confidence, so that we could find the way, so that we could see him. Had a young man come into my office this week. Never been to church. Never talked to a pastor. In a lot of trouble. Overwhelmed with grief. Guilt. And uh, somebody recommended he talk to me, so he did. Never been in church before. Hard to make, uh, believe, isn't it? But he doesn't know anything about Christianity. And his friend encouraged him to figure out this whole God thing. So he asked me, how would I possibly ever find God? What do I need to do? And I said, absolutely nothing. Don't I have to do something? I said, no, no. If God's real, he'll find you. But if you're interested, if you want to go out and spend some time together, I know the way. I've been there to this God. I know how to get there. If you want to spend time together. He just wept and he said, I'd love to spend time together. So we're going to start hanging out. I know the way to this God, and many of you do too. Many of you do too. He fully became like us so that we could connect with him, and he could show us the way. There is no parallel in human history, any place you look, for this. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. No other religion teaches this. This is the most incredible story in the history of the world. It's either true or it is complete lunacy. This is Jesus whom we serve. It doesn't stop with humanity. Look in verse 8. He humbled himself by being obedient to death. He was willing to die for us. And not just death, but crucifixion. 
the most vile form of death possible. It was so vile, the Romans only used it for a short window. They must have set it up just for Jesus. <laughs> it was only there for a short window of time, and they did away with it because they couldn't even handle it. It was so vile. Terrible, terrible death. Shameful, vile. And this is our example. For as Mar uh, Matthew 16 says, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cross. Where does the cross lead? Crucifixion. They must die with me. Do you want him to be crucified? Fortunately, by God's grace, he doesn't ask us all to do that, but some of you, he will. Still want to be a Christian? Still want to be a citizen of heaven? So what's the Father's response? Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place because he suffered so much on our behalf. His Father stepped in, exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father decisively intervenes. He steps in, just like he did with Abraham when he's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. Here comes a nice, stop. Now I know you believe. Father intervened decisively here to exalt his son, and he gave him the most gracious gift possible. He gave him his own name. He gave him the name, verse 9, that at this name of Jesus, every knee would bow. What name is it? This word here is the word that's used all throughout what we call the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used to describe the personal name of God, Yahweh. He gave him his own name. In fact, the name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. This is very, very rare. In fact, he's only done it once. Right here. Because in Isaiah 42, he says, I am Yahweh. Same word. That is my name, and I will not yield my glory to another. Why did he give it to his son? Because his son was God. He gave him the name. The result is that everyone will recognize and pay homage to Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every knee, every tongue confess. Everyone's going to do it. You could do it by your own free will, or you could do it dig, kicking and screaming. It's your choice. This is a quote from Isaiah 45, very close to Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, God, God is shown to be unique. It is God who is unique. He is shown to triumph over all, and God in Isaiah 45 swears that every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess that I am Yahweh. That's what Isaiah 45 says. And now this is fulfilled in Jesus. Ultimately, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, for those of you that are trying to figure out how could he be God and how could he be human, welcome to the rest of us. Welcome to the rest of us. In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea affirmed that Jesus was truly God. That was the first declaration of the early church about the deity of Christ. They affirmed it. 300 years later, that's how long it took them to figure it out. Reading and reading and reading and studying and trying to make sense of it. Just 60 years later, 381, the Council of Constantinople affirmed that Jesus was perfectly human. Well, what does that mean? He's 
fully God, and he's perfectly human. Well, it's another 50 years, 431, the Council of Ephesus affirmed that Jesus was one person. That's how long it took them to sort all this out. So he's fully God, he's fully human, but yet he's one person. Then 20 years after that, the Council of Chalcedon affirmed that Christ's divine and human natures were united without division. That led to the formation of a very core doctrine in our belief. It's called the hypostatic union. It's a technical term. Fully God, fully human, united in one body forever. And that has been the orthodox position since that time. It took the church five centuries to figure this out. So I think it's fair if we give you a couple of days. Okay? Fully God, fully human. Now, what's the impact of that? I don't want to just leave it as a dry theological statement. Here's the impact. <clears throat> it's easy to think of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and that's right, proper. Praise God for that. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes with communion here. But it's far bigger than that. His entire life was a sacrifice. And not only that, his entire existence, because he is now fully human forever. Forever. We live in a body. We're not created to live without our bodies. Paul says we're very uncomfortable if we take our bodies away. God made us for that. We need a home, a tent, he calls it. That I can, this is me. I, I need this. So do you. But that's not Jesus. Prior to the incarnation, he never had a body. Now, I have no idea what it's like to be all of a sudden restricted to a body. I can't make sense of all of it either. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says. But he stays in that body for all of eternity. Why? Because that's how important we are to him. When you get to the end of the story, in the New Jerusalem, guess what you find? Jesus is there walking around. You can touch him, you can hug him, you can have dinner with him, you can do all those things. His sacrifice goes on forever and ever. What did we sacrifice? Nothing. And he sacrificed it all called the hypostatic union. Let me read there. Let me just conclude and read this last section. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out, not work for, by the way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling, complaining, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from your faith, Paul's doing the same, even if I'm being poured out for your benefit, isn't that great? I am glad. And I rejoice. Some of you are experiencing pretty deep pain. It's not wasted. It is not wasted. We all share in that. We benefit from it. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So what's the conclusion? What's our response? Live out your faith. It makes a difference. 
Paul presents himself as the first example, and then he presents Christ. It makes a difference. It does. If we are not unified, we have nothing to say to a world that's fragmented. If we don't bless, we don't have nothing to say to a world that doesn't understand blessing. If we don't sacrifice for each other and for the world, we have nothing to say to a world that doesn't understand sacrifice. We could go on and on and on and list and fill in the blank on what that is. Living out our lives is the way that God reveals His glory to this broken world. Could it be that your suffering, my suffering, our suffering is the primary way that God reveals His glory to this world? It's the only language we share in common. I'm going to close with, uh, by the way, the book is out there now if you want to get it, by John Stott called The Radical Disciples. The last thing he wrote, in fact, his last chapter, he says, as I lay down my pen for the final time, and he died right after that, it's his last thing he wrote after years and years and years of Christian ministry. Fantastic scholar. Fantastic scholar. It's so amazing to me. The last thing he wrote is only this big. <laughs> this is under the chapter called Death. Dying to Christ. What does it mean? He's got several sections. The fourth area in which death is found to be the way of life is physical persecution. Once again, an outstanding example of this was the Apostle Paul. Few Christians have suffered as he did. Flogged, stoned, in prison lynched, shipwrecked, left for dead. Indeed, so extreme was the brutal treatment he received that he described it as a kind of death and his deliverance from it as a kind of resurrection. We experienced death and resurrection before we actually die. Hmm. I die daily, he wrote in the middle of his great chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, meaning that he was continuously exposed to the danger of death. Here is the full statement. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we even despised of life itself. Have you ever wanted to give up? I have. You ever been there? Despaired even of life? You're not alone. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that we will, he will continue to deliver us. By no means are all beleaguered Christians repeatedly rescued from death as Paul was. Christians are promised neither immunity nor deliverance. Instead, even in the midst of death, we can experience life. Paul goes on. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Could it be that suffering is God's primary way of revealing his glory to a broken world? Let's do that again. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Even while we are being afflicted physically, and made aware of our mortality, we can draw on the spiritual vitality of Jesus. What if suffering is God's primary way of revealing his glory to the world around us? It's the one language we have in common. Suffer well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for orchestrating the most unbelievable story in the history of the world. Lord, we may not understand it, but by faith we walk into it. 
and we try to live it out and try to appropriate it in our own lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christ, for being willing to pay such a tremendous price that you watch out for us. You're watching out for our best interests in everything that you do. Help us, Lord, to live that way as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and take an offering, and just let me say thank you. Whatever God puts on your heart to give, we as a church are very appreciative. We love your generosity. Thanks for taking care of us.